Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books in History podcast. This is Yana Byers, one of the hosts of the channel, and we're here today with Benjamin Kahn, Associate Professor at the Louisiana State University. We're here to talk about his new work, The Book of Minor Perverts, Sexology, Etiology, and the Emergence of Sexuality, out this year, 2019, from the University of Chicago Press. Welcome, Benji. Hi, great to be with you. Oh, it's great to be with you. How are you doing? I'm doing super. I'm doing super. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you're safe there in Louisiana. No, uh, no bad weather. Um, no, it's a beautiful sunny day. Uh, you know, perfect day for a walk, actually. Oh, excellent! Great. Okay, uh, happy to hear it. Yeah, I don't. Some uh, some of your neighbors to the south are having a little bit more trouble. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Don't worry. Oh, yeah. All right. So uh, tell me a bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you go to school? Um, I was actually born in New Haven, Connecticut, right in the foothills of Yale University. <laughs> uh, I've often had occasion to tease my parents that if they if they had just known one professor, maybe uh, that might have been uh, very helpful as a, as a career role model. But uh, I uh, actually had the great good fortune of, of meeting a really um, incredible mentor um, named uh, Jeffrey Mastin when I, when I went to Northwestern for, for college. And um, of the, of the many, many things that I learned from Jeff, um, one that he taught me was that um, sexuality helps us to ask the most urgent questions in our lives, the, the way that we stay up late thinking about our relationships, about our gender and sexual identities, about about who we want to be and, and how we move through the world. And I think I really um, brought that um, abiding passion um, uh, for sexuality uh, with me to, to LSU. And um, uh, I teach a, a range of courses there. This semester I'm teaching American Lit and Women's and Gender, uh, uh, Intro to Women and Gender Studies. Um, And last semester, I taught a really fun course called uh, The Body in Parts, Mm. where each week we did a a different uh, non-genital body part. So we were reading like Gogol's The Nose and uh, Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio to think about hands. And um, it, it was really a lot of fun. Well, that sounds delightful. Yeah, it was a great. Was that an undergraduate class? It was actually a graduate class. Yeah. Yeah, great. When when they're good, grad classes are the best. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, uh, I mean, this you had this wonderful mentor, and pretty much like I'm assuming um, a pretty long-standing interest in sexuality. So, what brought you particularly to the topic of this book? Um, I was starting to read uh, a lot of um, uh, of these kind of uh, 19th century um, sexological textbooks. Um, 
is uh, the kind of discourse that helps um, judges and lawyers and doctors know what to do with what when people exhibited um, unusual sexual behavior. Should they um, should they be institutionalized in an asylum? Should they go to jail? Um, are they in need of clergy? And I started to read these books um, when I was working on um, uh, my first book, Celibacies, and I became very interested in what um, these uh, sexological uh, uh, doctors and lawyers had to say about um, uh, not having sex. Um, so uh, some sexologists recommend uh, only having sex in the spring uh, because the uh, w- woman is always in rut, and they, they think that that is kind of unnatural. Um, so I became just absolutely mesmerized by these um, these unusual unusual books, and um, I paired up with a, a brilliant classicist named Melissa Haynes, um, and we decided to uh, I edited and she translated from Latin the first ever sexological textbook, um, which is uh, Heinrich Kahn's. Psychopathia Sexualis from 1844. And um, in that book, um, which Foucault called the most important book <laughs> in sexuality, um, in the history of sexuality. So uh, we'll make for a fun blurb on the back. Yeah. Um, yeah well, all right then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, I, I became interested in, in Heinrich Kahn's um, uh, nosography and, and kind of system of sexual psychopathologies, which includes things like um, sex with statues, um, uh, necrophilia, pedophilia. Um, He uses the term lesbianism to describe both male-male sexual relations and female-female sexual relations. Mm -hmm. So it's a a fascinating Mm -hmm. book. And and that interest in the kind of minor perverts that that Heinrich Kahn is, is charting in his book um, led me to, to, to write this book, the book of minor. Mm. All right. That is, uh, so that fascinating. And this kind of leads me to my first question. Like you've kind of gotten there, but still I've been dying to ask this. How did you come up with this title? Um, it's a great question. I, um, sort of borrowed the title from Foucault. He, um, in the history of sexuality, volume one, in the most famous passage, he talks about the speciation of the homosexual, right? That the homosexual had, uh, a, 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 had been a sodomite and, and kind of became a homosexual. Um, and he mentions a, a second speciation on that same page, 43, in the, in the English translation. And um, he sees that speciation as important, as being as important as the speciation of the homosexual but he kind of ignores his own insight. Um, and so my book really tells the story of how we move from what he calls the, the thousand aberrant sexualities to one homosexuality. And so the book is really interested in, in telling the story of that numberless family of perverts. <laughs> oh, and he- Thank you so much. Right, the the that is a the perverts. Thank you. That is a very important uh, that the, that this not be lost because there's so much. Uh, your your book is fun as well. There's so much fun stuff to talk about. I cannot wait to teach it this semester. I already sent one of my students to it, and I was like, let me tell you about minor perverts. All right. 
Um, so, so like, let's, let's draw this out a bit more. What's your book about? Kind of give me the parameters. Like, what's the era? Where are you talking about? this? Like, what, what's your, what's your region? What have you? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the book is mostly focused on, um, Anglophone material from the late, I would say maybe the mid 19th century to the mid 20th century. Um, and, um, it really tells the story of um, both uh, uh, the emergence of the hetero-homo binary, by which I mean how it is that so many of us um, stand in relation to heterosexuality or homosexuality, even if we identify as kind of bisexual or asexual or queer or trans, um, there's a way in which um, the hetero-homo binary is still the kind of dominant model, um, uh, this kind of object choice-based model, right, that we, that we call object choice because um, it's a model that is defined by the person from whom attraction emanates. Um, and uh, I really wanted to tell the story of how the hetero-homo binary became so dominant and how, in doing so, um, these minor perverts were lost or made vestigial or dropped out. And so I thought that the book could really offer an opportunity to recover these kind of lost ways of thinking about sexuality at the same time that it was telling a story about the emergence of the heterohomo body. Mm-hmm. Great. I mean, because, uh, you know, there's, there's such a good conversation to be had there and such a questioning of uh, why we define our sexuality by the thing we're attracted to, as opposed to something innate or like, you know, or something in our bodies. So this is a very important question. But as you know, as it as happens, it's hard to remember that the status quo was ever a choice. There was any, it's hard to remember there was any point where that wasn't the case. Certainly our, our students don't know it. And uh, I think that's a great, some, one of the major contributions that you make. So um, can you tell me in a sentence uh, or, you know, maybe three, what you think your major argument is like, so what, what did you, what did you do here? Uh, absolutely. I, I just wanted to pick up on one thing that you were saying there. So um, I think that I hope that people in reading the book will come to know, as you were saying, that there weren't always just two dominant sexualities, that there are other ways of organizing desire. So many of us experience our desire as inchoate or inarticulable, and yet we we try to wedge it into these um, prescribed and normative instantiations of pleasure. And I hope that my book will inspire people to explore the incommunicability and unimmobility of their desires. Um, but to, to go back to your question about, um, about my book as a, as a whole, um, I think that for a long time, sexuality studies has, been afraid of telling the story of the hetero-homo binary. And the most kind of um, famous example of this would be Eve Sedgwick, the kind of founding figure of of queer theory, um, 
she says that um, sexuality, she says that sexuality studies should stay away from ideological questions because it's bound up in what she calls gay genocidal nexuses of thought. And um, my book uh, kind of actively disputes that to narrate um, the um, history of the heterohomo binary for the first time. Uh, and then, so I, I think that the best way to kind of walk through that argument then is to just go through your book chapter by chapter. So um, your, your first chapter, the walk-in closet, situational homosexuality and the always of desire uh, opens up your, the main part of your work. Would you like to tell me about that? Definitely. The, 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 the term, the always of desire um, refers to the kind of mainstream um, of sexology, the, the one that's gotten the most scholarly attention, um, which is to say psychopathia sexualis, um, which is a kind of term for the um, psychologization of sexual aberrations, um, which is dependent on a kind of unchanging psychology. So in this chapter, I wanted to think a bit about um, another figure, the, the figure of the situational homosexual who kind of becomes homosexual in same-sex environments, um, usually single-sex, like um, uh, on boats or in military encampments or in, in, in schools. And so I, I explore two lesbian plays there, one which is relatively well-known by, by Lillian Hellman called The Children's Hour um, from the 30s. And another um, almost completely forgotten play by a man named Thomas Dickinson from um, 1929 called Winterbound. Um, and these plays are both about um, confinement in an all-female environment. And I'm very interested in the chapter in thinking about the kinds of models of um, situations, the kind of costs and benefits, the sort of circumstances that make um, the situational um, uh, the situationalness of sexuality possible. And in particular, I'm interested in the way that the category of the true invert or true homosexual kind of emerges um, in sexological discourse um, as antithetical to or against the sort of pseudo or false or situational homosexual. Hmm. Okay. Um, I'm interested. Uh, I, I think it's interesting that you chose to write about women here. Um, l- plays about lesbians. Cause when we talk about this work, this kind of, um, you know, situational homosexuality, we tend to look at things like the Navy um, men prisons. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I was interested in the ways in which, um, men and women seem to have different sexual timelines for, um, uh, to, to, for, for the sexologists. And I think that there's something so for example, they, they see men as kind of, um, more congenital, less kind of prone to situational homosexuality, even though the kind of fear around it is greater. Um, and, um, women seem to be kind of more fluid in this kind of sexological imaginary. And I think that this is still true today. Um, you know, you have a lot of figures like, um, the lesbian until graduation or, 
gay for the stay, um, uh, you know, uh, gay for a three beer queer, uh, you know, uh, liquid lesbian, etc. Um, and I think there's a kind of cultural imaginary in sort of uh, U.S. present tense, um, which imagines that female female desire is sort of uh, that female desire in general is is more flexible. And I think part of this has to do with um, the kind of still larger prohibitions. I think on male um, homosexuality um, than, than 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 female um, homosexuality, and part of that might also have to do with um, kind of lesbian desire being a sort of site of, of heterosexual male eroticism. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're talking about uh, situational homosexuality and the always of desire. Why don't we talk now, why don't we contrast that with what we've got in chapter two, anthropologia sexualis, universalism and the macro environments of sex. Yeah. That's a really, uh, I love the way that you frame that question. I think, to the extent that sexuality studies thinks about sexology at all, I think it thinks about it in that register of, of psychology that I, that I was talking about in the first chapter. Um, but in, in the second chapter, I, I take up what I call uh, anthropologist um, sexualis, which is a term that uh, the sexologist Ewan Wolf coins as a as an alternative to psychopathia sexualis. Um, he sees anthropologia sexualis as turning away from what he called, um, quote, limited circles of perversion. Um, and he instead wants to kind of um, leave the clinic to see that everyone is um, the same, that variations and varieties of, uh, of, of perversion come instead from climate so this chapter really shifts away from those enclosed spaces of prisons and schools um, and other same-sex environments to consider the um, macro scale of the environment. And part of the reason that I turn to the environment is that I'm really interested to tell a kind of um, a large-scale history of what impact um, the sort of several-thousand-year history of the kind of like humoral body has on the development of the heterohomo binary. So I'm interested in how did the body become a kind of closed, solidified container for sexuality um, rather than a kind of um, open humoral body. And I, I pay particular attention um, to Thomas Mann's uh, famous text, um, uh, Death in Venice, as well as this um, really wacky text um, by a man who might uh, justifiably have a claim to being the most interesting person of the 19th century, which is uh, Sir Richard Burton. Um, not not to be confused with the with the actor. Um, he Burton spoke 20 languages. He was considered to be the greatest swordsman of his time. He snuck into Mecca as a pilgrim. And he is also uh, said to have uh, frequented his share of brothels. Um, But in the chapter, I'm interested in um, this essay called The Terminal Essay, which is named after its kind of place at the end of his translation of um, The Arabian Nights 
where he sees huge swaths of the world, the Mediterranean, the Levant, East Asia, North and South America, as places where pederasty uh, flourishes. And while scholars usually, I think, dismiss Burton's um, appendix, um, his terminal essay, as a kind of joke, um, I argue that it actually um, reflected the scientific wisdom of the time and that um, a huge range of, of widely respected sexologists like Havelock Ellis and Blolf and Eugene Steinick and a number of others um, really took up uh, Burton's claims um, and, and, and incorporated them and, and disputed them and, and engaged with them in their work. Um, and so in the chapter, I'm really interested in the way that the solidification of the body, um, which um, isn't yet evident, kind of creates the um, the minor perversion of of, of wanderlust, uh, which is of course uh, still a term that's very much with us, but at the time um, connoted uh, a kind of sexual pathology because the humoral body um, more than anything needs stasis um, in order to be at rest and um, and so wanderlusting itself became a kind of a kind of sexual perversion as well as um, associated with a, a variety of other kind of perversions. Wanderlust as a sexual perversion is a fascinating idea. I'm thinking, I mean, like, well, and what that does, you know, how I'm to think about sex, like how that has to ex- kind of change my definition of sex, or at least make me rethink that, right? Like, Absolutely. I think that, like, um, if we still think about, um, I think there's still a way in which um, kind of, uh, a kind of heterosexual advice that is passed between say generations is it's time mm-hmm. to settle down. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I think that that, um, and here I'm riffing a little bit on, on Margot Kennedy's uh, brilliant work, the straight state, but I think that it, um, advice to, to settle down, um, really kind of suggests the degree to which, uh, wanderlust, contains this kind of unstable, um, uh, sort of perverse lusting. Mm -hmm, Sure. And yeah. And uh, you know, but like the kind of that you get in protracted adolescence and then you settle down, your sex becomes (laughs) reproductive as it's intended to be. Um, that's, I mean, as, as sexual perversions go, that's all right. I'll take that one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Also, I think that on sort of, uh, uh, dating websites, everyone sort of advertises themselves as as kind of uh, having one. Right, so, yeah. Love to travel. Uh, yeah, love to travel kind of is like a, a, a sort of, of like both maybe a class-based mm-hmm. marker as well as um, as well as a kind of like uh, a kind of interesting come on. Or at least a cool yeah. one. <laughs> That's, That's I'm going to be thinking about this for days. Thank you. Okay. Um, you know, I really thought that the when we talked to, about the next chapter, Magia Sexualis, Sexual Subjectivity and the Willfulness of Sexual Aim, we were going to get to my favorite sexual perversion, but maybe too late now. Uh, we may have hit it with Wanderlust. Well, I'll try to dazzle you with a little uh, David Copperfield. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are sex magicians, so... There are so yeah um and i promise to tell our listeners what's <laughs> okay great um uh, 
the the third chapter um, uh, is is interested in in the way that we've really uh, lost the ability or forgotten that um, many of these kind of earlier sexual formations or defunct sexualities were associated pretty strongly with magic. So a lot of sexologists are interested in hypnosis and kind of uh, kind of mesmerism. Um, many of our vocabularies of earliest vocabularies of sex come from mesmerism. So um, uh, Carl Ulrichs, who's one of the earliest theorists of homosexuality in the 1860s, um, uh, is very invested in, in mesmeric thinking. Um, uh, and so I try to kind of especially recover the sort of magic that's inherent in the figure of the fairy, which is a kind of period term for effeminate men. And the way that the fairy, um, which is still a, a term that you, you hear occasionally, um, uh, has a kind of association with leprechauns and make-believe and, and magic, or um, the, the way that the figure of the genius for sexologists um, uh, is also somebody who can see the future and and is possessed of kind of magic second sight. Um, uh, Edward Carpenter himself thinks that um, the reason that many shamans, uh, in his opinion, are are homosexual is because the homosexual himself is is a kind of magic figure. Um, and in the chapter, I, I focus in particular on on one sex magician, uh, a kind of uh, African-American sex magician from the 1850s who, who might compete for, <laughs> with Burton for the most interesting man of the, of the 19th century. But um, uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph um, uh, is particularly interested in teaching a kind of art erotica practice to, to make geniuses and one that will unlock magic powers. And he essentially thinks um, I'm revealing one of Randolph's, you know, probably his most closely guarded secret here. Um, yeah. Yeah. So he, he thinks that simultaneous orgasm will not only permit you to under the right conditions, um, create genius babies, but also to teleport time travel, <laughs> um, et, cetera, et cetera. So, um, so, you know, uh, goals. Seriously. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Had no idea you were doing it wrong. Didn't you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> goals. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's, it's, that's a late, the fifties are late for that. Right. Yeah. No, yeah, 1850s. this is the, the oh, 1850s. That's it. It's like, yeah, I thought you were in the 20th century, 1950s. So, I mean, in a way, I think that there's there's some registers that we can think of um, Randolph as actually um, a feminist figure, um, uh, somebody who was um, sort of deeply invested in 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 female pleasure, um, and and um, and and so um, and I think mm-hmm. that itself is also is also. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and I, the the whole, the mid the nineteenth century is just something, isn't it? All right. So let's let's uh, <laughs> chapter four here: sex in the age of Fordism, the standardization of sexual objects. Absolutely. So um, the hetero homo binary, as we've been talking about it, is 
a kind of object-based system, one where where the attraction is 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 based on the the who you're attracted to, the object of your desire kind of names the the sexual orientation. And I became very interested in how um objects got to be the center of the dominant system of sexual organization. And I started to uh, read a text called Winesburg, Ohio by, by Sherwood Anderson, which is one of my absolute favorite novels. Um, uh, it's also perhaps like could be classed as a short mm-hmm. story collection. Um, uh, and I, I'd recommend it to, to everyone. Um, and in that book, um, Anderson is very fearful of the processes of standardization. He thinks that um, all of our desires are going to be standardized by the coming of industrialization and that we're all going to talk alike and think alike and uh, look alike. Um, and so he um, is very fearful that, that Fordism um, uh, itself is going to, um, to, to standardize um, ways of, of desire. So the chapter really charts the ways that objects um, are, are located by, by Fordism um, at, the, at the center of, of consumer and sexual desire. All right. Um, can you comment on that a little more for me? Absolutely. So one thing that's interesting about um, Henry Ford and Fordism is that he was very interested in regulating the sexual lives of his employees. He worried that if they stayed out too late at night gambling and drinking, um, that they would not be able to perform their functions very well at work. Um, And the other kind of fascinating feature about Fordism is that it's not just a mode of production, the kind of assembly line that we associate with the Model T, but that it's also a, a mode of consumer consumption that he wanted to pay his employees enough. And he in fact kind of demanded that his employees would buy model T's. Um, and so because it's a sort of style of production and a kind of mode of consumption, um, I argue that it um, standardizes um, sexual as well as consumer objects. Um, and in this chapter, I'm also particularly interested in the way that Weinsberg continually offers um, uh, kind of ways out of that standardization, kind of um, more grotesque, unusual, perverse um, kinds of desires. Um, so I, I trace that kind of double movement mm-hmm. through the Okay. Yeah, this makes, this is helping me to understand. This was a tricky one for me. All right. So chapter five, volitional etiologies toward a weak theory of ideology. Yeah, this chapter is the, is the last full chapter in the book. And I was interested there in what role um, sort of will um, plays in the kind of debate between acquired and congenital kinds of sex, right? So um, if some modes of acquisition are, are sort of largely unconscious, so say being in a particular climate, 
other modes seem more habitual or possible to associate with vice. So I'm thinking of, say, like gambling or celibacy or alcoholism, things that we might think of um, and sexologists did think of in the register of vice or habit, um, you know, like, uh, you know, or um, is smoking a kind of disease? Is it a habit? Is it a vice? Same thing with alcoholism um, for the sexologists. And so in in this chapter, I'm, I'm really interested in the ways in which they think about um, sequencing, um, uh, in particular, I, I focus on alcohol, um, alcohol and homosexuality. So, does alcoholism cause homosexuality? Does homosexuality cause alcoholism? Are they comorbidities? And I, I kind of explore these questions in relation to two sort of. Uh, alcohol-drenched novels. Uh, one is uh, Malcolm Lowry's uh, Under the Volcano, and the other is uh, is Charles Jackson's um, The Lost Weekend. So please tell me about the way you conclude this book with your final chapter after Sedgwick, The Gordian Knot of the Great Paradigm Shift. So there, there's a, a big debate between sexuality studies scholars whether um, the earliest um, models of homosexuality emerge in the in the 18th century, or whether they emerge kind of toward the end of the 19th century. And I, I thought that after kind of mapping the synchronic tensions um, between the kind of coexistence of different models of sexuality, as I do um, throughout the book and in the in the chapters, that it might be good to. Uh, revisit this kind of long durée debate uh, in order to see if um, the kinds of um, uh, coexistences that I was mapping might allow us to tell a new story about the emergence of 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 the heterohomo binary. And so the, the chapter really tries to synthesize the whole book um, by recontextualizing it. Um, in this longer narrative. Oh, it's such a, it's so interesting. Um, that's such a great way to kind of pull it all together too. And a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful conclusion. I love the, love the way you pull it together. Thank you so much. So, uh, this is great. And I have taken up an immense amount of your time with this interview. Uh, but so would you tell me, uh, if I could just have a few more minutes, will you tell me what you're working on now? Absolutely. Um, I'm working on two projects right now. Um, one of them is in part kind of growing out of, of, of this book called Sexual Aim and Its Misses. And um, it's a really um, fun topic. Um, the way that Freud defines sexual instinct is he sees it in two parts. Um, one part being sexual objects that, that we've been talking about so much today, and the other part being sexual aims. Um, and so this is Freud's term for modes of gratification. So if the object's the person that you want to do something with or to, the sexual aim is what you want to do um, uh, with them. And so it might be kissing or copulation or uh, fingering, fisting, any kind of sex act, of course. Um, and 
for Freud, the normal operation of the sexual aim is, is, is of course, copulation, um, which kind of hilariously leads him to think of um, kissing as, a, as an aberrant sexual aim, one that kind of uh, distracts from, from the real goal of, 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 of um, kind of co- what we would recognize as copulative um, heterosexual sex. Um, and so the book thinks about these kind of aim-based sexualities, many of which are still with us in our current sexual system. So Freud especially highlights um, sadism, masochism, voyeurism, exhibitionism, and fetishism. And so I became very interested in the way that these um, uh, uh, sexual aims still play a kind of subterranean role in our own sexual system. And I think have a lot to tell us about the history of foreplay and modernity and the ways in which we think about sex now. Um, and the second project that I'm working on um, is, is a book that I'm working on with uh, uh, Medica Kishi, and it's called Sex Under Necropolitics. And in this project, um, I'm really interested in thinking about the ways that we have too readily assimilated um, Black subjects um, living under Jim Crow to the dispensation of sexuality. So um, Madika and I are interested in charting the intimate relations and um, corporeal practices of, of um, African-Americans and how they, um, contra George Chauncey's book, Gay New York, really differed substantially from their um, immigrant counterparts. So we're building here on um, Hortense Spiller's understanding of black sexuality as ungendered. And we contend that um, black bodily practices and intimacies are not organized around gendered status and gendered sexual objects in the way that um, that Chauncey describes, but um, are rather um, uh, more uh, public and collective um, and we think that um, scholars have, in general, thought of them too much as um, private and individual. And, and so in, in this way, we're really trying to tell a new story uh, or a new account of the color line's sexual life. Right on. That sounds great. Thank you wow. so much. Thank How you. is it going? Are, you, are, you, is, are we still in writing phase? Are we thinking? What's going on? Um, uh, well, Madika and I actually published the first piece in the Journal of American Studies, um, and so it's called Sex Under Necropolitics, um, and it's kind of, I think it's, the electronic version has been published, but the print version has not been published. So it's, the project is at um, a kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're, 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 we're mid, midway along, I guess. I know, okay. Um, uh, but it, it's going, it's going really well. I am. I'm gonna. Well, I know what I'm doing tomorrow now. Excellent. Oh, you know, um, we don't need to get into it for our listeners, but we have worked very hard on this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this interview uh, suffered some severe technical difficulties, and I am thrilled that we got through it. I, uh, I am too. Um, Yana, yeah, I was wondering, would you mind asking me just one more question about? Sure. 
um, about, uh, is there anything I'd like to add? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so thank you so much. This sounds great. Is there anything else you'd like to add to our discussion? I, I would like to, to, to add one thing. Um, I, I worked on this book, um, uh, the book of minor perverts with, um, an, an editor by the name of Doug Mitchell and, Doug is a really towering figure in the field of LGBT studies. He published um, one of the first books in in LGBT studies called um, Christianity, uh, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality by um, John Bothwell. Little book you might have heard of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And um, this book was a, a kind of runaway smash hit. Not only did it kind of win the National Book Award and 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 uh, was a kind of huge financial success for um, University of Chicago Press, kind of funding many other titles. Um, and I just wanted to say that, um, sadly, um, Doug passed away a few days ago. Um, and um, I, there's really no one who's done more for making the field, um, changing the field from one that was disreputable and not really welcome at scholarly presses to one that was um, one that was celebrated, and so Doug is not only a kind of visionary um, uh, kind of editor, but he was also just um, the most amazing person um, that that you could ever meet. He uh, he he played with John Cage, and he was just charming and kind and witty and um, endlessly curious. He had a kind of Warhazian curiosity and a kind of Whitmanian capacity for friendship. So I just, um, I just am so grateful and honored that I got to work with him on this book. Oh, that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful tribute. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, wonderful. Thanks. Rest in peace. Um, well, all right. Uh, it has been great and I'm looking forward to sex under necropolitics among other things from you. So thanks so much. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Yana. 